you're trying to allow the burgeoning of the child's personality, loves, desires. That's ultimately what you're protecting. And if there isn't discretion between what is the parent's frustration, what are the losses and disappointments of the parent's world versus what appropriately ties into what is really the prerogative of the child, that is where things get really messy. Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Often when it comes to these podcasts, there are stories in my life that spur on ideas to perhaps illustrate what it is that I'm trying to convey. And a moment happened recently that fits the bill. (laughs) I was taking my son to camp. It was a Wednesday morning and he'd already had quite a busy summer. He had three full weeks. He'd already traveled internationally with another family and he'd been sailing for a couple of weeks. And then we were back in the city and he'd been saying that he was a bit tired and, but we got up, left the house And I could tell that he just wasn't into it. And I had to go to work. I had things to get done. And we were on the subway together. And he wasn't protesting. He wasn't asking to go home. I could just tell that he was tired. And he was in a camp that was very physical. He was doing parkour. And we got all the way there. And we're walking up to the building. And just before we got to the entrance, I turned to him and I said it doesn't feel like you really want to go today. And he said, no. And I said, well, do you want to go home? He said, yeah. And so we turned around 10 meters from the door and walked towards the subway. And there was this immediate shift in him. He perked up. He started telling stories. My wife and I were actually going to get our second vaccine that day. And I asked him if he wanted to come. He said, yeah, I would really like that. And his whole demeanor changed. The music in his voice was distinguishably different. And the reason I'm telling you this story is not to pat myself on the back Perhaps some of you may even disagree with my decision that we got all the way to the camp. Maybe some people feel like we should persevere and push through these moments of fatigue, and that may be right. Time will tell. But for my own value system and what I have learned about the human nervous system and the brain, these subtle communications are really, really important. You know, 
I often use the metaphor of the piano when it comes to learning how to play our emotions. And just now I had the image of this being kind of the, you know, quieter high notes, you know, when you're at a concert hall and everyone's quiet and the pianist really is able to use the full dynamics of their instrument to affect, to reach us. So I thought that I would take some time with this podcast to do various series on topics. And for the next few podcasts, I'd like to loosely focus on parenting, but more than that, I'd like us to zero in and look at this process of repair. And so the reason that I'm telling you this story about being with my son is that there was a communication happening there. And what we don't want, and this is what so many adults talk about when they're older, when they come to therapy, what we don't want is a kind of extreme when it comes to the ways that we either have to reach for attention from others or extremes where we have to protect ourselves from emotional assault. I've mentioned him before, Heinz Kohut, who has the concept called optimal frustration, but ultimately we want there to be a good enough environment where we can play the instrument of our emotions as children and there to be good enough resonance that it gets through. And there's an additional layer to this. I wasn't sure on Wednesday what to do. I was tired myself. I knew part of the way that my son wasn't really into going. It, for a moment, felt like it could be a bit of a burden on me to keep him home that day, and we'd paid for this camp, and it was our plan. And also, don't forget, we got all the way there, and it was door-to-door about a half-an-hour trip. And so, rationally, it seemed a little silly to get all the way there. My wife had packed his snacks and bag for the day, and so everything was set. Everything was set for him to go. But at some point, once it sat long enough with me, I knew that the higher value there had nothing to do with the wasted time packing his bag, the fact that we had gone all the way to the camp. No. The highest value there was coming to my senses and listening to his subtle communications. You see, one of the dangers, I think, in families is that we tend to think with the glass half empty. So we'll often think about our children and want them to be more motivated or more focused or to try harder. How many times on report cards would they say, you know, this person needs to really use their potential? They have so much potential. (laughs) When I say it out loud, it's just, you know, what could be more disheartening? You know, yeah, you're not using all your potential. Come on. And I'm not making comments here on 
motivating somebody or giving them a kick in the pants if they need to try harder. But I think what I am professing or why I'm zeroing in on this is that there's an innate desire to do things if we love them. I mean, reflect on yourself for a second. You know, if there's something that you really enjoy and that means a lot to you, often it doesn't require a kind of conscious effort to get it done. There is a kind of wholesome pleasure that we take in what we do when it really connects with us. But the issue is that if we are too critical, if, in my mind, I had somehow assumed that this was necessary, that he had to go to prove a point, in large part I would have been overriding his own instincts. And this gets into territory that is quite familiar in the psychological landscape. I think most succinctly described by the British psychiatrist, pediatrician Donald Winnicott, who spent a lot of his career writing about this notion of the false self. And each of us has aspects of the false self. We always have to, in our life, find some way in certain situations to protect our raw emotions, protect things that maybe don't belong in conversations, and maneuver in a way that gets us through successfully without feeling too exposed, etc. But that's not really what Donald Winnicott was worried about. What Donald Winnicott was worried about are these micro moments where the child is attempting to express something which actually may be very inconvenient for the world, for the parent, for others. You know, there are myriad examples when I look back where I thought there was something that was great for my son. For instance, when he was very little, he swore off skiing, uh, alpine skiing, and said that he just wanted to snowboard. He would never ski in his life. And so I signed him up to do snowboarding. I can't snowboard myself, so I needed someone to teach him. And he was loving it, loving it. And then I said, okay, you love it so much. I'll buy you the equipment. And he was only, I don't know, seven years old. And you can sign up for a weekly group. And we get there on a Saturday afternoon. He has all his brand new equipment, which I just bought. And he goes down once. He quasi hurts himself, comes back up and says he never wants to snowboard again. And I remember him kind of running across the snow. I, I believe that he'd hurt himself, but it was more that he was done. And I had a choice. It was a huge punch in the gut because I had run around that week like crazy, getting his equipment, having it fitted, then going to pick it up. And what I wanted to say was, look, I signed you up for all this. I went out and bought all this. <laughs> but I bit my tongue because I realized that actually so much of that fantasy of what I wanted for him, I had concocted. I had put together based on things that he had said and me taking him out. This love, I had maybe even had a future plan for him to snowboard. He was seven. He was just playing. And just because three weeks earlier he said he loved it, 
doesn't tie him to loving it then. The equipment was brand new, so I sold it for almost as much as I paid for it. And I'm happy to say that this past season, him and I skied a tremendous amount, and he loves it. Because after that, he tried skiing and found it easier and fell in love with it. And there's something that I think that we often misunderstand in relationships, particularly in parenting, because there's a hierarchy in parenting that is very different than a horizontality that exists in adult-loving relationships. And the difference is, is that in adult-loving relationships, there's an equality there of taking care of each other. So one might argue that each person's needs lives on a kind of equal basis. And there is an impetus and a responsibility to really wrestle to take care of each other and learn. When it comes to children, that shifts dramatically. If you were visualizing this, really, it's the parent on top, a child below, and there's an arrow pointing down. And the arrow pointing down really just means that the care system is coming from the parent downward. So to use the example that I just gave you, it wouldn't be my child's responsibility to comfort me that I had gone out and purchased this equipment and signed him up for this course. That's just not his responsibility. He's seven years old. Now, I think that easily happens sometimes, right? We're frustrated. It's a long day. Maybe you drive a long way to get to the park. And maybe some parents are like, well, you have to teach your child commitment and they have to push through things. And again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is time for those things. But but intellectually, what I'm hyper-focused on just to support this idea is that at that age especially, and, and I would say for quite a few, many years, <laughs> you're trying to allow the burgeoning of the child's personality, loves, desires. That's ultimately what you're protecting. And if there isn't discretion between what is the parent's frustration, what are the losses and disappointments of the parent's world versus what appropriately ties into what is really the prerogative of the child, that is where things get really messy. And as a clinician, where I see this all the time is when parents are going through disagreements or maybe a divorce or a parent is really struggling and the child feels like they have to really pony up and take care of the parent there. And I think what we're trying to instill is a soft, delicate, responsive, flexible relationship with the child's instincts. And so what often I think gets misunderstood is that in this instance, the work of parenting could be seen as, well, my job in that moment is to teach my child commitment. So I have to stand my ground. I know it's going to be hard for them, but they made a commitment and we have to get through this. <laughs> but if you actually slow that down, is, is that really true? Is that really what this would be about? Or is it possible that on some deep level, we're, we're demanding respect for our efforts as in, oh, I went out and did all these things for you. Therefore, we have to see this through because look at all the effort I made. Again, maybe I'm wrong. 
But for me, when we talk about the work of parenting, the work is to actually suffer that disappointment, to not react to it, to not turn it into some kind of teaching moment. The work of parenting is to be like, oh, oh, yeah, you've really started to say something different to me, haven't you, about X, about your desire, right? Fast forward to when the child is choosing courses for high school or choosing their university degree <laughs> or whatever they want to do in life, right? That's often full of right turns, left turns, 180s, 360s, you know, just messiness. And so fundamentally, at a young age, what we're trying to model, I think, is, hey, not only are you allowed to change your mind, not only is it okay to go against the grain or for us to make decisions that maybe are difficult about commitments that we made, but now don't serve us anymore, but I'm going to be here for you when it happens. And I'm going to recognize my own part in this. And I'm going to create the room for you to be who you are. And as I say this out loud, I realize that this is quite personal for me. As many of you who listen to this podcast know, I come from an Eastern European Jewish background and my wife is Catholic and born in Poland, and we met at school in New York City. And so this brought the usual vibrations in my family who survived the Holocaust and made their way to Canada. And it was hard. And to be honest with you, the moment that I remember the most that just sticks in my heart was my own father sitting with me at a cafe in downtown Toronto. Remember the coffee cup in his hand? And I remember him and I talking about the fact that this was important to me. And I remember his hand shaking, and he looked at me, and he said, I have your back. I will support you in this. And I remember him actually putting the coffee cup down so resolutely as if he had made a decision in his mind and his heart that he would make room for who I was. You know, none of the moralizing, none of the fears, none of the anxiety, none of that, none of that stays with me as any kind of productive aspect of all of this. And this, this layers so exquisitely onto the neuroscience of emotion, which is why I talk about it so much. The higher order mammalian brain experiences threats in our environment to our survival and to our safety all of the time. And at that point, through a complex network of memory, of prediction, of physiological cues, right? Emotions are not these discrete places in our brain. That movie Inside Out is just categorically false, where you have these 
balls in our brain that are responsible for anger or sadness or loneliness. No, 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 no. These are sophisticated networks based on a whole range of experience in our life and the ways that our body responds to signals that let us know how we should behave or think in any given moment. But the real issue of this is that if we are overwhelmed, then we tend to act in more primitive ways. You've heard me discuss this a lot, and it's quite popular now in the discourse. Fight, flight, and freeze. If we are overwhelmed, we can't make decisions. Our autonomic nervous system takes that away from us. That affects us in every aspect of our lives. It affects our children at school. If I think I'm going to fail on this test, if I think my answer in class is going to be stupid, if the prospect of making a mistake makes me feel so vulnerable that I have to protect myself, what does the brain do? It goes into primitive responses of fight and flight. That's often why children can struggle at school, because they're going to shut down if they worry about being shamed and they worry about being alone. And then on top of that, if they worry about disappointing the adults in their lives. Excuse my French, but that's called a shit sandwich. What a shit sandwich is for a child is if they're already having a hard time or they're worrying about something, and then they go to talk to their parent about it, and their parent gets anxious and experiences their own shame or fear, and then the parent responds defensively. That reinforces that, yes, you're right, child, something is very, very wrong. And if we just break it down to its smallest parts, as in what actually does the child need to feel safe in a given moment where there's the overwhelming prospect of vulnerability? Well, the child needs to know that whatever is going to happen is going to be all right. And to go back to my earlier stories, the child also needs to know that things can change, that if their preferences change, there's going to be room for that. We don't do well as human beings when we are cornered. We know that. There's many, many examples in Hollywood movies, and we've sort of really animated that idea of the human being stuck between two walls that are kind of closing in on them, and we're on the edge of our seats and seeing if they'll survive, and we get nervous too for them. And But we don't want that. We want to save those moments in our lives for really, really, really when it is absolutely necessary to feel that way. And if any of you are listening who are in situations like this, I feel for you. I happen to live in a particularly safe country. That is not true for everybody. That is not true for many people who live in the country I live in. But if we do have the luxury of choice, then we also have to avail ourselves of our reflective capacity. And that is exquisitely the parent's responsibility. Now, of course, it grows in the child over time. And as we notice that our child can reflect more on their behavior, 
can learn to come back to us and apologize. Of course, we're subtly modeling that for them all of the time. But what I'm talking about are these moments of disappointment, of maybe our child not fitting the mold that the, we want them to be. Maybe we have had, had instincts about what they should or shouldn't be, and those things are very important to us. And we feel a sense of disorientation when our child doesn't live up to this vision that we have maybe cultivated for many years. Out of love, of course. It's all out of love. Nobody thinks about their child becoming a famous ballerina or a famous athlete out of anything other than a sense that we want them to sparkle and shine and do great things in the world. But, and this is discussed very often, the narcissistic connection to our children is really important to scrutinize. What I mean by that is that if our child's behavior affects us in a way that brings up strong negative emotion, even positive emotion, both ends of the spectrum, that we get so attached to the feeling of, of our child's success and that we can't handle the feeling of, of disappointment, this ultimately is what is referred to as being narcissistically attached to the child so that we cannot separate the emotions that are going on within us and discreetly see them as our own fantasies versus what is germanely emerging in our children. And it cannot be overstated how important it is to protect and nurture that. That is what we want. We don't really want our children to become what we think they should be. I don't really want to force my child to go in that moment if he really doesn't want to go. I don't want that because I don't want my child in 20 years to have a complicated relationship with the things that they love in their life so they feel they have to perform in a way and betray their own instincts. I don't want that. None of us want that. That, that is an incredibly punishing version of mental health disorders in adults, where somebody for years conforms the demands of a toxic boss, the demands of a toxic relationship. We don't want our children to betray themselves in the service of others. And if it sounds like I'm catastrophizing or I'm turning what seem to be somewhat banal moments into serious failures of parenting, well, it's because I believe it to be true. I believe, as my grandmother would say, that a thread and a thread makes a full sweater. That these are the little moments, as Charlene says in my second podcast, trauma is in the present. These are the little failures if we don't repair them, if we don't recognize that we are projecting onto our children our own disappointments over time, build a very strong sense in them that what they feel and think is either somehow not okay, or they have to go underground to accomplish what it is that they innately feel. What I recognized in my son that day when I said, we can go home, and I mentioned it already, was just how he came to life, how one moment he was 
tired and kind of despondent. And the next moment, he was chatty. He was engaged. The rest of the week when he went back to camp, he was totally engaged. And I think even on the Friday, he said something like, oh, I'm tired today, but I still want to go. You know, there was a lot of capital that was created there. There was a sense of him being seen. There was a sense of flexibility. And again, I feel a bit strange bringing up examples in my own life. I promise in this podcast I will share foibles and areas where I've had to pick myself up. But this was a moment that I felt particularly proud of because it wasn't easy to turn around and go home. I even felt a bit sheepish telling my wife, sending her a text, we're coming home. But she had my back. She knew it was the right thing to do. And ultimately, I'm talking about this so we can have a conversation. I work day in and day out with adults, helping them try to regain a sense of connection with their selves, trying to work through some of the more punishing and corrosive self-talk. And I'm learning too. And so I am very much open to your feedback. I want to hear from you. And you can email me feedback at mitchellsmolkin.com. And please let me know what you think about this. Please let me know your concerns, your questions, your disagreements with these ideas. I'm just putting this out there. But I feel it's very important. And as I have talked about in an earlier podcast, we in very many ways live in an environment now where our emotions are on our sleeves. And I think sometimes people are afraid of taking their foot off the gas when it comes to parenting as if they will let their children down if they don't motivate and push them. And there is some truth to that. Absolutely. I just think it has to be done in the right way, and it has to be done from the bottom up. John Bowlby, the father of attachment, British psychoanalyst, who is now probably one of the most quoted and cited writers in psychology with the burgeoning attachment movement, the basic premise of what he was talking about was that if human beings know that somebody has their back, they will feel an innate motivation and love for life. Maybe not the things that you had hoped your children would love. Maybe sometimes, yes, maybe there are alignments. <laughs> That's just icing on the cake, really. But the basic premise of the theory, and this I see all the time, is that if we know someone has our back, and if we know we can be ourselves, that goes a long way to freeing us up to engage with the things that we love in our life that bring us pleasure, happiness, and reward. And if we can do them out of a sense of our own desire and authenticity, well, what is greater than that? So thank you for listening today. Thank you for considering some of the edges of how to make room for the other, particularly our children. It's not easy, but I think that remaining curious and open and being willing to stop in our tracks if we know in the long run 
it's going to serve a greater good, then it's worthwhile. Thank you for joining me today. This is a topic very close to my heart, and I would love to engage with you on it. Please send me your thoughts, questions, and feedback, and I'll do my best to both respond and take them up in a future episode. You can reach me at feedback at mitchellsmolkin.com. I hope you are all enjoying your summers wherever you are, if that's the season where you live. I know I have some listeners where that isn't the case, and I'm so grateful to reach so many of you from around the globe. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so, and please review the podcast. And I would appreciate you sharing this with your friends, colleagues, and family if you feel it is useful. I engage with many of my listeners on Instagram. Please join me there. I'm at I am Mitchell Smolkin. Until next time, I remain faithfully yours. <laughs>